Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we take a closer look at California's gun law known as a red flag law, after another state's, Indiana's, red flag law failed to thwart last month's mass shooting at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis. Red flag laws allow for disarming people deemed a threat to themselves or others at the request of family or colleagues. We look at what went wrong in Indiana and how California's law works. In the wake of yet another horrific mass shooting just this morning, this time in San Jose. Our thoughts are with victims and loved ones as we monitor the situation. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Santa Clara County sheriffs say multiple people are dead and injured after a shooter opened fire early this morning at a Valley Transportation Authority light rail yard in San Jose. The gunman is dead, and victims include employees of VTA, which provides bus, rail, and other transit services in the Bay Area. Joining me now is California Assemblymember Phil Ting. Thanks for being here, Assemblyman Ting. Thanks for having me, Mina. Ironically, we had planned to talk today about a California law that has as one of its aims to prevent mass shootings. First, if I could just get your reaction to news of this tragedy this morning. Well, it's absolutely horrible. And we all hear about these strategies and we just wonder when is this going to stop? Um, That's one of the reasons I've been fighting for gun violence restraining orders to take guns out of the hands of the wrong people. And at this point, we don't know um, any details at this point. At least I don't know any details. But incidents like this are just absolutely, absolutely horrific. Um, it reminds me of the shooting at the at uh, the UPS um, uh, center right uh, down the street uh, yes. from San Francisco. In San Francisco, a few years ago, where a coworker went in and you know shot and killed uh, some of his coworkers. And it's just these kinds of incidents are just absolutely uh, horrible. And I know that this is one tool that we can use to hopefully prevent some of these incidents from happening. Yes, as you're saying, gun violence restraining orders or what are known as red flag laws cannot 
thwart all mass shootings, and we have no idea or indication that it played any role in this tragedy, and I want to make that absolutely clear. But as you say, Assemblymember Ting, it really is one tool to try and prevent them, and one of the main reasons for our conversation today that was planned well before this event, of course. But we want to understand how California has been implementing its red flag law, and interestingly, it... uh, you made amendments to it that were enacted last year. Can you talk a little bit about what California's law does and, and how it's changed since 2014 when it was uh, first proposed? Yeah, when it was first proposed, it was um, in reaction to that horrific shooting in Santa Barbara in Isla, in Isla Vista. Uh, and it was initially just uh, law enforcement and family members who could uh, use a gun violence restraining order. Uh, I've, I've been fighting for a number of years to expand it uh, to people who are your coworkers, your employers, as well as uh, people who are teachers, administrators, principals, people who you're at school with, because uh, quite often as we become adults, we're not always around our family members. If you're an individual, perhaps you're a single, you're not really uh, interfacing much with your family members and perhaps uh, law enforcement hasn't gotten a tip to uh, that, that you may be potentially uh, dangerous or may, may want to use that weapon in a dangerous way versus your coworkers who are around you every day and the people who you go to school with, um, they're around you every day. So we saw in the Parkland case in Florida that um, you know the, the principal had identified the person. Uh, they didn't have a gun violence restraining order, so the principal really couldn't do anything. But the individual was... Um, already identified as someone who perhaps uh, shouldn't have had a gun. Uh, we saw in the horrible um, uh, bar shooting down in Thousand Oaks that uh, the, the sheriff could have used a GVRO but chose not to. Uh, they had already visited the individual before the shooting uh, but did not, um, for whatever reason, hmm. use a gun violence restraining order to take uh, the individual's guns away before they perpetrated that horrific shooting uh, in a bar a few years ago. As you say, authorities can do this, but could you walk us through the process of an individual trying to get a a gun violence restraining order, GVRO, uh, like uh, a family member, a colleague, an employer, or a teacher, as the law allows for now? Yeah, I'm I'm going to probably defer to our city attorney, Mara Elliott, who's really uh, been the main person, and she's been such an amazing leader. in this space, San Diego City Attorney Mari Elliott has really been almost single-handedly uh, responsible for uh, almost half of the gun violence restraining orders in the state. Uh, we have funded her uh, department to do trainings for other law enforcement agencies, and I think she's one of the reasons why there are more uh, law enforcement agencies and more gun violence restraining orders actually being issued. She can kind of walk you through exactly uh, that step-by-step process. And let's bring Mara Elliott into the conversation. City Attorney for San Diego. Mara Elliott, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, good morning and good morning to Assembly Member Ting, who has been a champion for San Diego and for the state of California with gun violence restraining orders. And we um, here in San Diego have very effectively used them. We started our program back in December of 2017, and with the assistance of Assembly Member Ting, we're able not just to really solidify our own program, but to also train others throughout the state of California. So a gun violence restraining order is a civil order. It is not a criminal order. And typically we hear about a concern from a community member or a family member 
Sometimes it's even a group like the Alzheimer's Association of San Diego, somebody who has noticed that there is a behavior or some type of indication that a person is a harm to themselves or to others and that they have access to a gun or they have guns. So as the city attorney's office, we work with law enforcement. The complaint comes into to the police department. The police department assesses the risk and if they believe that there is a potential for violence, they'll refer the case to our office. Our office prepares the paperwork and we file a case with the Superior Court of California. In that process, we can get a temporary restraining order so we can immediately invoke a gun violence restraining order. And then we have up to 21 days to prove our case to a court of law. So what is the court looking for? They're typically looking for indications like Facebook postings. They're looking for threats that have been, been made in the workplace or at the school site. They're looking for definitive evidence that a person is a danger to themselves or to others. And if we prove our case to the court's satisfaction, we get what's called a gun violence restraining order. That allows us to prevent a person from having access to guns until they deal with whatever the crisis is that's causing them to be irresponsible. A gun violence restraining order can last up to five years, and it is up to the court to determine the length of time for a GVRO. The person who is implicated in the meantime can address whatever the crisis is. So maybe they need some counseling or they're dealing with a relationship breakup or they have mental health issues, drug abuse issues, something to that effect, they can deal with that problem. And once they become a responsible citizen again, they can get their guns back. So this is a very effective pre-criminal activity intervention tool that can be used to prevent some an atrocity from occurring in our communities. And every time we hear about things like what we heard about this morning in San Jose, we always wonder had a gun violence restraining order been in effect for this particular person, could that have been prevented? And here in San Diego, we're very vigilant and our communities know if they see something, say something, report it and give law enforcement an opportunity to investigate to see if there is indeed the potential for gun violence. So again, um, this is a trifecta approach. You have your law enforcement, um, you've got the city attorney's office working with law enforcement to file the paperwork and you've got a court of law. So it's not law enforcement specifically, it's not the city attorney, it's a court who is making a determination as to whether or not there is a real potential for violence. And Mara Elliott, if the subject of the restraining order feels that their rights have been violated, that their gun was unfairly confiscated, what recourse do they have? They have uh, many opportunities to express their side of the story. And that's why I think it's very important to stress that this is a trifecta. So when law enforcement initially gets that call, they're investigating and they're hearing this person out to see whether there is a, let's say, false report or a misunderstanding so right at the beginning of a process, there is an investigation and a case will not be referred to us for action unless that the investigation occurs and law enforcement is convinced that we've got a problem. 
Then there's that secondary level of review where my office, um, working with the police department, reviews everything to ensure that we have a solid case because we are responsible as officers of the court to bring solid cases to our superior court judges. The judges are fully trained. So when somebody has a pending gun violence restraining order against them, that judge is not going to rely solely on what I am saying as a city attorney or what law enforcement is saying, but that individual can come into court. They do not have to hire a lawyer and they can explain their side of the story. And that's how the process works. So due process is fully implemented and that is an important step of this process. And we wanna make sure that we are being absolutely respectful of the law. And that's why these three steps absolutely must occur before the judge rules as to whether or not this person is a danger to themselves or others and should not have access to that gun. Your office, Mara Elliott, has used this law more than any other jurisdiction in California. Can you talk about why your office has been able to make use of the law so often? Well, I, I think there's many reasons why. And probably the biggest reason is that we have done a lot of community outreach. And before this law came into effect in 2016, I think people were well aware when dangers were around them, but did not know what to do. And a crime had not yet occurred. So who do they call? So we have really reached out to all of the communities. We have a mayor and a city council here in San Diego that are absolutely dedicated to preventing gun violence. Our um, police chief also 100% in because he's not just protecting communities, but his own officers. So getting the word out to communities to say, if you see something, say something is extremely important in telling them to whom they should say something. We also work closely with social workers in our county because sometimes they're the first to see things. We have trained um, nonprofits and other city employees, could be librarians or park and rec employees who are observing something. And in particular, our neighbors are usually well aware of dangers. So communication has been absolutely key in getting information out about this program. We're talking with Mara Elliott, city attorney for San Diego, also Phil Ting is with us, assembly member representing California's 19th district, which includes San Francisco and San Mateo. We're talking about California's red flag law, which authorizes local authorities to temporarily remove guns from those deemed to pose a threat to their own lives or the lives of others. And if you have questions about how California's law works and thoughts about how far they go, give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQBD Forum or email us, forum at kqbd.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're monitoring the situation in San Jose, where sheriff's officials say multiple people are dead and injured after a shooter opened fire this morning at a Valley Transportation Authority light rail yard in San Jose. Here's uh, San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo at a press conference this morning at 9.30. My attention will then be immediately turned to ensuring we do everything possible 
to ensure this never happens again in our city. And in the next 48 hours, I will be back in communication with you to talk about what we've been working on over the last year and a half and what we intend to do in the weeks to come to ensure we never see a horrific tragedy like this again in San Jose. We are in a very dark moment, but I am heartened to see the response of the VTA family coming together to help their coworkers. We're gonna do everything we can to support the families of those who have lost their loved ones. And I'm grateful for the immediate response of law enforcement led by the sheriff's office. We're able to secure the scene and ensure there would be no more loss of life. San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo. We're talking ironically today about a tool that is aimed at trying to prevent mass shootings. And we're joined by Assemblymember Phil Ting, City Attorney of San Diego, Mara Elliott. And you, our listeners, if you'd like to share your thoughts on California's red flag law, what you think about its provisions, you can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can ask your questions on email at forum at kqed.org or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Joining me now is Campbell Robertson, a national correspondent for the New York Times. Campbell Robertson, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, California's... Red flag law, which is basically about five years old now, has been credited with likely preventing suicides and possible mass shootings. And when it came to light that the mother of the shooter at the FedEx facility in Indianapolis, that incident last month, that the mother had tried to invoke Indiana's red flag gun law, we we thought we'd take a closer look at what went wrong there. And uh, I know that you have been covering the aftermath of Indianapolis's mass shooting that killed eight people, including four members of the Sikh community. I mean, I thought red flaggers were supposed to prevent these kinds of things. Can you take us back to when the gunman's mother approached police about her son so that we can better understand how sometimes they work and fall short? So what we know um, about how this began was that the mother uh, and one of her daughters went to a police roll call at a local precinct a year ago or in March over a year ago and said, I'm worried my son has a shotgun and has been talking about um, aiming it unloaded at police and, and committing suicide by cop. That was her way of phrasing it. He wanted to, but that's what he was telling her. And she said, what can I do? Um, she returned home with the police and he came downstairs and the police apprehended him and he played down, this is according to the police report, he played down any suicidal thoughts that he may have said, but has said he had been feeling sad and despondent and could use some counseling. Um, they took him to a, a local hospital for what was a, uh, a hold of a detainment for a matter of hours and they took the shotgun um that was referred to the local prosecutor and this is where you know there's a disagreement over what went wrong um the prosecutor never took the case to a to a judge for a, a protection order 
Um, so, and he's come under a lot of criticism for that. You know, we had, it seemed to have all the elements of a case in which this would apply. His argument was that the, uh, under the law, he had 14 days to, to bring a hearing before a judge. There's no search warrant power because this isn't a criminal matter. Uh, under Indiana law, you have 30 days to reply to subpoenas and he can't get healthcare records in, that, in 14 days for a 30 day subpoena window. Hmm. Um, in a lot of red flag cases, the, the incident that starts it is already an incident where you can, where police can file affidavits saying I responded, there was a domestic violence situation, the person was, you know, vocally expressing suicidal thoughts. There wasn't any of that here. It was just, you know, the, the, the mother has said this was going on. So, and the final conclusion that the uh, prosecutor said when he was asked about this was that the family had agreed to turn over the shotgun and even uh, the shooter had agreed to turn over the shotgun. And so as far as he was concerned, the emergency was, the crisis had been averted. The efforts to get a, you know, to go to court with it would have been difficult in the time frame. And under Indiana, these things can, even though you have to have an effort to have a hearing in 14 days, they can pin for months. And during that whole time, you can still go out and buy more weapons. So Which is what the shooter did, correct? Well, Meaning well, they didn't, I mean, well, they did, didn't, the prosecutor but, never brought the case, but ultimately, even after the initial gun was confiscated, the shooter was able to buy more guns? He bought, he bought two more weapons in the next six months. And those are the weapons he would use last month. Mara Elliott, as you hear Campbell Robertson describing what happens, does California, does California's law basically have provisions in it that would prevent something like this? And I know very little about this, uh, the specifics of this case. I can speak to the experience in San Diego, which would be, I think, reflective of the state of California. We can turn our cases around within a day. And we don't need to have medical records, mental health records, anything like that to prove to the satisfaction of a judge what we're required to prove. And that's that there's a substantial likelihood that the individual is, they pose a significant danger to themselves or to others in the near future. And they have custody or control um, of a gun and that this restraining order is necessary to prevent injury to that person or to others. So our standard is um, relatively broad. And so just reflecting on what I heard from, um, from Campbell and his description, we would have looked at social media, we would have spoken to neighbors, we would have built our case um, so that we would have enough information to press forward. And once we had our information, we would move extremely fast. It sounds like the, the uh, state of uh, Indiana has very different uh, regulations than we do. And uh, again, we have that burden for the court. So as soon as we have that information, we would move extremely fast. Yes. And what are the requirements around being able to purchase another firearm? Once we have that restraining order in place, the person cannot. So they are pro prohibited from purchasing more firearms. Joining me now is Jacob Sullum. Uh, Jacob Sullum is senior editor for Reason Magazine. Thanks so much for being here. Jacob Sullum, are you there? 
Well, while we try to get the connection with Jacob Solom, the other thing that I wanted to uh, ask you, Mara Elliott, is basically, so they're unable to purchase the gun. They're unable to, you are able to have the initial um, gun being removed from the person for 21 days as opposed to 14 days in Indiana. And in addition to that, there aren't quite as many requirements in terms of documentation that can be lengthy in terms of getting. Is that correct for you to be able to make a case to the judge to be able to get that temporary restraining order? There is not a blanket requirement on what the evidence looks like. We have to meet our burden to a court and we have to show that there's a substantial likelihood that what I had mentioned earlier exists, that this person uh, poses a significant danger to themselves or to others um, and they have access to a gun or they have they have a gun and that the restraining order is necessary to prevent uh, that person from possibly hurting themselves or others. So we can rely on whatever evidence we think is necessary to prove our case. And it comes in all shapes and sizes. It can be testimony from people who've observed something. It can be social media postings. It could be uh, behaviors that are indicative but regardless, we pull the full case together and present it to a court of law so they can determine whether or not that burden has been met. I believe we have Jacob Solom on the line with us now. Jacob Solom, are you with us? I am here. Uh, I wanted to ask you quickly, as you're, you're hearing this, you have some concerns. Um, and could you share some of those? What concerns you about this particular law? Well, I think the essential problem is that the process is stacked against the respondent from the beginning. Uh, initially, uh, when uh, people seek uh, the temporary order or the emergency order, uh, there's no chance for the so-called respondent to respond. There's no hearing. And in California, you can lose your Second Amendment rights for up to three weeks without any chance to rebut the allegations against you. Um, and then once that order is issued, uh, to get a longer order, which can last as long as five years, which is really uh, kind of astonishing, uh, what you have to prove is that there is a significant danger, a significant risk. And nobody really knows what that means. Uh, the significant risk, uh, let's suppose it's 5%. So you have to present clear and convincing evidence of a significant risk. Uh, what that implies is that the vast majority of people who are su subject to these orders would not actually have harmed themselves or other people with a firearm. So and if you sounds, look, yeah, sorry, go ahead. If, if you look at data from other states, I haven't seen comparable data for California. The initial orders are essentially always approved. That's cause for concern. Uh, maybe people are being super careful because they know a judge is reviewing it, but we can't can't rely on that. And then uh, in in Florida, for example, uh, the uh, order that lasts for up to a year, uh, those are those applications are approved 95% of the time. And again, we can say maybe everybody knows it's being reviewed by a judge, so they're being super careful. But I, but I think uh, that we need a stronger safeguards than that. And in these hearings, even once they get a hearing, uh, except for Colorado, no state 
gives a respondent a, a right to court appointed counsel, which means if you can't afford to hire a lawyer, you're really in trouble because you're already uh, subject to a temporary order. And the presumption is they should uh, maintain that, maintain your inability to uh, possess firearms because, because they're assuming this is, this is protective. That's, uh, there, there is a sort of inertia built into the process uh, that makes it very difficult to overcome the allegation that you pose a threat to yourself or others. So it sounds like both parts of this process trouble you, meaning the initial seizure of the firearms by police without a hearing, for example, and then even the subsequent process of trying to acquire the restraining order from the court. Uh, even though I think what we're hearing from Mar Elliott is that there's a very high evidentiary bar here. I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you, Jacob Sullum, is the calculus I think that underlines this is yes, that there there is some infringement to a degree on personal liberty with the idea that the benefit to society outweighs that infringement on the individual. Um, to those who might argue, and especially in light of what happened today, that we have absolutely no idea if it's related, but that the temporary confiscation of a firearm from a dangerous person is justifiable. What is your response? Well, you're assuming the person is in fact dangerous, and that's the thing that needs to be proven. Uh, I think we should note that although these laws generally were passed in response to mass shootings, and that's the context in which people generally think about them, uh, data from other states indicates that uh, a large majority of cases actually in involve people who are thought to be suicidal. So that's really mainly what we're talking about. I have not seen comparable data for mm. California, so I can't say for California. So it's kind of a bait and switch because you say we're passing this law uh, to stop mass shootings. But then, in fact, they're mostly used to prevent people uh, from killing themselves. Now, there is some some data that that suggests that that works. There's data from uh, right that California, a lot of Cal mass shootings are, in fact, suicides. No, no. Uh, not no no no. I'm, what I'm saying is, uh, there's some data that suggests uh, from Indiana and, and, and Connecticut that suggests that laws like these can help prevent suicide. But even those studies suggest that 90 to 95 percent of the people who are subject to these orders and lose their constitutional rights uh, for a year or more uh, would not actually have killed themselves. Mm. Uh, so, so that's just, you know, you talk about weighing what weighing the benefit against the cost. Well, the cost is for sure people are losing their Second Amendment rights for a certain period of time. And the benefit is, well, some of some of those people might have killed themselves or might have hurt other people. But if the percentage of people who would have done that is actually quite small, then I think the, the cost benefit analysis tilts against the law. Well, Jacob Sullivan, really appreciate having you on. Sure. Thanks for having me. Jacob Sellum, Senior Editor for Reason Magazine. Campbell Robertson, wanted to get your reaction to what Jacob Sellum was saying to some extent. I mean, actually, I have heard there the Harvard professor whose name escapes me at this very moment um, was talking about how frequently uh, mass shootings are potentially, are suicides in the sense that the person is wanting to take their own life and, and going to take other people out with them. But the broader point about whether or not red flag laws, especially in the case of Indiana, are effective at preventing mass shootings. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, he, he raised, uh, Jacob raised some good points that I heard talking to scholars about the law. I mean, there is some evidence, and he mentioned this research in Indiana, that um, for every 10 firearm seizures, and I'm, there may be some qualifications I'm missing, but for every 10 firearm seizures, 
a life is saved, and that is usually someone who would have killed themselves. And I looked through the eight um, petitions for, they're called Laird petitions in Indiana, uh, for red flags that the uh, Indianapolis prosecutor's office has filed this year. And in almost every case, it was someone who was making sort of suicidal statements. So I, I do think he's right that they have been shown to be most effective uh, when it comes to suicide, which is, you know, most gun deaths are suicides. And whether it's a little trickier when you get to, you know, mass shootings like this. I mean, there was a scholar at, in North Carolina who pointed out that some states would have had a separate law that if someone were detained for a short amount of time on a mental health hold, like Brandon Hole was in Indiana, there would have been some restrictions for, you know, six months or something for that. Mm. That law may have actually played a bigger role here in preventing uh, his purchase of, of guns later than a red flag law. Because mm. again, while that case was pending, um, that wouldn't have had any bearing on whether he could purchase firearms or not. There's something about Ting. I think one thing that's interesting about this is that your law exists to try to prevent tragedies like mass shootings and suicides and, and also family violence. We should not uh, discount the fact that it is also related to domestic violence cases. But it also means that there will never actually be concrete evidence that they work because we'll never know what didn't happen, essentially. Well, well, thanks for that question, Mina. What, what are the major challenges with getting gun gun data is um, Congress has passed a law saying that the Centers for Disease Control is prohibited from doing any research on gun violence, which is one of the reasons uh, we have funded, we, the state of California, have funded UC Davis. They have a violence prevention research program, and they actually have done a study on gun violence restraining orders and found that they were effective in uh, preventing mass shootings here in our state. And so um, it's it just points to, it just reiterates a point of, why data is so important and why, um, you know, the gun, um, the NRA and, and gun gun groups have been very effective at stopping us to get this information. But it also demonstrates why the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis is so important because they're starting to do research around gun violence restraining orders. We have an apps program, which is taking uh, taking guns away from people who've already been deemed dangerous by law enforcement, and they're doing an evaluation of that program. Uh, but, but the research has clearly shown that gun violence restraining orders do uh, prevent mass shootings. And yes. We'll have more about California's red flag law after the break. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
We're monitoring the situation in San Jose, where a mass shooting took place this morning, as we also talk about California's red flag law, which authorizes local authorities to temporarily remove guns from those deemed to be a threat to their own lives or those of others. And we're joined by Campbell Robertson, national correspondent for The New York Times, Mara Elliott, city attorney for San Diego, and Phil Ting, assembly member representing California's 19th district, including San Francisco and San Jose. And you, our listeners, are with us, and you can comment at 866. 866- 6733-6786 on email forum at kqed.org on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. This listener tweets, our country is awash in easily obtained firearms and we are less safe as a result. Red flag laws are a step in the right direction, but we need to do more to change the culture that makes people think owning a gun is a solution to any problem. Let me go next to Art in Sacramento. Hi, Art. Hi, I'm a registered nurse, a family nurse practitioner and a public health nurse. Uh, I I you know I have I'm in a family that they, they one of my family members owns many guns and you know the thing I think about is how do we go about ensuring that um, like evaluations for mental health are done at the time of purchase or prior to the purchase you know one of the questions we ask as nurse practitioners are, and nurses are is uh, suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation and I'm just wondering. Um, if, if we can include or incorporate in the purchase of a gun uh, that aspect of evaluating a person's mental health in advance. I mean, I know it's no guarantee, but it's a, one way for a gun seller to ask question, you know, is this, are you having any suicidal or homicidal ideation? That puts at least that out on the table. Felting, any reaction to what Art is suggesting here or any conversations on the legislative front? Yeah, I think Art brings up a great point. Um, the, the legislature, even though we've done um, significant policy in terms of gun control and making sure that we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people, uh, we haven't been successful in um, really having more strict requirements that other other countries, almost every industrialized country has many more strict requirements than we do in terms of you have to apply for a license, you have to, uh, you know, some countries require you actually to take a training course before you uh, purchase a gun. And um, we, you know, gun, gun bills, my gun bill even has been very, very difficult to get through the legislative process. Uh, there are a number of my colleagues, fellow legislators who are just very reluctant to do any kind of um, restriction of gun rights. And so that's been a major challenge. I think your your, your question is you know really well posed and I myself would support a much more rigorous process of um, what people have to do. Like, you know, when we get a driver's license, we have to take courses, we have to do training, uh, we have to demonstrate insurance. Uh, there's a number of things we have to do before we can drive a car or purchase a vehicle. Uh, and I think we should take some serious rethinking about what it takes to own a gun because it's a lot of uh, power in one person's hands. Well, let me go to Ann next in Santa Barbara. Hi, Ann. Join us. Hi. Yes. Um, I'm calling because my closest friend of 34 years with a history of schizoaffective disorder and severe delusions was taken into the hospital in 5150s four times in six months. Um, The last time he was on a 72-hour hold, he was kept for 30 hours and released. Um, He subsequently, within two or three weeks, killed himself Mm. and... um, the problem is um, this happened. He had a nine-year history of suicidal ideation, 
and um, fortunately, he they took away um, his right to have a gun sometime before. But what I'm when I talk to police all over from um, Los Angeles to Santa Barbara to social workers to funeral directors to everybody um, to um, rehab workers, they say in in the um, state of California and possibly the country. Um, people are taken into the hospital, kept in the EDA, the emergency room, and if they can't find a place for them, they're released very quickly. Now, there is only 16 beds for severely mentally ill people in Santa Barbara County. 16. They take them in and release them. The underlying problem of all of this is we do not take care of our severely mentally ill. We do not evaluate them and and the hospital gets off scot-free because they follow protocol and then the doctor the doctor the psychiatrist i don't know if they're pressured by the hospital or what else because of money but they release them well and i i can hear how uh that this is an important issue for you and, and when you're thinking about your neighbor though i do wonder campbell robertson what is is there data on the link between severely mentally ill and people who who may commit shootings or or um suicides with well, by I, gun I, I think the the data that i've seen shows people who have mental illness are overwhelmingly unlikely to do anything like this and you know there are concerns about you know a- any rhetoric that would too tightly tie um uh, sort of people who are wrestling with some mental illness and the assumption of a danger, yes. um, which is why you have these, you know, because the vast, vast majority are not dangerous. Um, and so, which is why you do have these standards, you know, so, so people don't, you know, as Jacob Solon said, so people don't lose certain rights um, that, they, you know, there is a hearing and it is a, with arguments presented on both sides. So, that's built in the system, I think, in part because you don't want to stigmatize people wanting to get help. Well, Mike writes, among the tools we might implement with the aim of reducing gun violence, can any of your guests please speak a bit about the TRT amendment and the positive effect its possible repeal might have in combating gun violence? Mar Elliott or Phil Ting, I'm not sure if, if you can comment on the TRT amendment, which I understand allows the ATF to withhold certain gun registry information. Mara Elliott, do you I'm have not familiar or with that, yeah. so I don't. What I'll, about I'll, you, I'll let Mara, she knows it. Yeah, I apologize. I'm also not uh, familiar with that. Um, well, let me thank Mike for the question. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm also struck by um, that Phil Ting said, Campbell Elliott, is that, is that he's had a hard time. I mean, gun laws, trying to pass gun laws in this country, and even in this state, is really difficult. But this, the, this, the restraining order, the the red flag law seems to be one of the laws that has at least initially enjoyed bipartisan support. Do you know if that's still the case? Is, Campbell, it, is this for me? <laughs> yeah, Campbell Robertson, sorry. Yeah, no, that's all right. Uh, it was, I mean, you know, Indiana has one of the oldest red flag laws um, in the country. I think it was 2005 and it was passed but for two votes with unanimous legislative support. But most Indiana counties, and I hope this is right, but most Indiana counties still don't, 
the local prosecutor does not petition for them. I mean, Indianapolis, Marion County does. There are a couple of others that do around South Bend, but most counties don't. And I think what was once seen as a sort of a a bipartisan agreement that this in in the sort of buffet of things that we could choose from to help prevent gun violence, maybe this is one of the ones we can agree on. Um, there's very little bipartisan ground left in gun politics now. Well, let me go to call. Yeah, Felton, go right ahead. I was going to add also um, that uh, I got very little bipartisan support when I passed uh, this law, and it took me three times because our Democratic Governor Jerry Brown vetoed it twice, my gun, uh, my GVRO expansion. And even after we uh, have done the expansion, we've had a very difficult time, which is why we funded City Attorney Mara Elliott's office to do training, getting uh, more law enforcement agencies to issue them. In fact, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle noted, and we knew this for a while, even San Francisco, a very progressive town for years, it took, I think, three or four years to get them to issue one or two. Um, and so, um, it just hasn't been seen as a priority. So it's even when you get the policy passed, it's so important that we can get law enforcement up to speed and that we see uh, law enforcement leaders like uh, City Attorney Mara Elliott to, to really take the lead to go implement the laws. Well, let me go to caller Luke in San Jose. Hi, Luke. Hi, yes. Um, so my concern is uh, that almost always gun control is enforced more heavily in minority majority areas than it is in, say, quieter suburbs. So, and, and then some of these uh, red flag laws allow law enforcement to actually be the individual to report on, on someone. Right. And so uh, with that, the concerns about, you know, um, bias in policing, this seems like a, a bad uh, provision to have. Hmm. Let me get Mara Elliott's reaction to your comment, Luke, and I thank you. Yeah, I have heard that before, but I've not seen any data that supports that because these are responsive court orders and they're typically in response to a family member or a neighbor who calls police in a crisis situation. Usually it involves domestic violence or threats of suicide. What we have discovered is that it's typically uh, a middle-aged white man who is making the threats we see uh, a need for gun violence restraining orders in the issues that impact every person in San Diego very personally. It can be family violence, it can be a workplace situation. Uh, gun violence restraining orders, especially during the pandemic spiked and we noticed that there were more threats of suicide. Um, I believe that it might've been Campbell that had mentioned the statistics about um, guns. We've taken about a thousand guns. And if we were to apply the standard that uh, as to lives saved, that'd be a hundred lives saved. And as San Diego city attorney, my job is to protect the people in the city of San Diego. This is a very protective tool because a crime must not is not needed to have occurred before we can intervene and prevent someone from killing themselves. But again, this is a crisis intervention typically started by somebody who cares about the impacted person. And just to add some some data, Mina, so that UC Davis study that I talked about, um, they said that between 2016 to 2019, when there was uh, over one, just about 1,000 individuals who were subject to gun violence restraining orders, 90% of them were male and three-fifths of them were white. Hmm. That's we're the data from, from UC Davis for California. For California. 
Well, thank you for that. We're talking with Phil Ting, Assembly Member representing California's 19th District, including San Francisco and San Mateo. Mara Elliott is with us, City Attorney for San Diego. And Campbell Robertson is with us, a national correspondent for the New York Times. We're talking about California's red flag law, which authorizes local authorities to temporarily remove guns from those deemed to pose a threat to their own lives or those of others. And you, our listeners, are with us, of course, talking about your questions and concerns at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, and you can email us at forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And we have an update for you. Sheriffs are reporting that eight victims have been pronounced dead at this point at the scene. This was the mass shooting at a San Jose rail yard facility this morning. Again, authorities are reporting that at least eight people are dead at this time. KQED is continuing to monitor the situation. Meantime, there is also a request from the Stanford Blood Centers for type O blood that is needed for victims. This listener writes, I support red flag laws, but the coworker provision concerns me. There seems to be a big difference between how well a family member might be familiar with someone's mental condition and what a coworker might know. What kinds of showing would one would one employee have to make ooh, against another? Phil Ting or Mara Elliott, would you like to take this one? A point of contention when I carried the legislation through the legislature three different times. So what we did to strengthen that provision, because people worried, well, what if a coworker just has a beef against someone? They could use this as as retaliation. And so the coworker really needs to demonstrate that they need to go to the employer. Uh, they need to go to some administrative person. So if it's a larger company, they'd have to go to human resources and, and work with uh, management to really um, identify that this and agree that this person is considered dangerous. Uh, or if they're like a smaller company, I assume they have to go to the to the owner of the business to really uh, make that determination. So it wasn't just an individual who has a beef against another coworker could really go do this. So we did try to uh, you know, add some protection so that it wasn't just one individual making the case, but really it was um, an individual plus the company making that decision that this should move forward. Was there one sort of resource for more information about this law that gets into some of these details in terms of a coworker, a teacher, an employer, and so on? Um, yeah, you know, not, not, not off the top of my head. I don't know if Mara puts anything out on her, on her website um, and, you know, through her training, but yeah. off the top, you know, I don't have a particular website. Mara Elliott, where do you refer people? I'm sure you get asked a lot about implementing this in part because your office does do it so frequently. Yes, and as Assemblymember Ting mentioned, the state of California through Assemblymember Ting's efforts funded training that my office has provided to government entities and nonprofits throughout the state of California. So our training materials are a good resource for any jurisdiction that is looking to implement a program like this. There are also um, resources on our website. I would always suggest that somebody not try to figure this out on their own, but call law enforcement for assistance. That is the easiest way. UC Davis, of course, has information, and so does the Superior Court website, and they have information on how to file for a restraining order and what the process looks like to just demystify it. Let me go to caller Michael in Claremont. Hi, Michael. Hey, uh, good, good morning. Thank you for addressing this issue. 
I think I, I, I want to say to you that uh, both of my experience in, uh, as a prosecutor and as a defense counsel, that as a public defender, that these restraining orders really have minimal effectiveness. And so, uh, the, the, uh, you know, for example, there are domestic violence victims who have, many have had restraining orders against their husbands. And they, they're dead. They wind up dead. So I think really the restraining order concept, that thing, is really makes legislators and other people feel better. But the, the effectiveness is, is minimal. And I think that what we have to do is more focus in on proactive intervention with law enforcement and, uh, as, as one caller said, and try to, try to have better intervention and treatment beds, for example. Hmm. But the restraining orders really are not, uh, they're not an effective prophylactic, honestly. Well, let me get both Mar Elliott and Felting to quickly respond to this. Mar Elliott, I'll start with you. Your reaction to what Michael's saying here? I'm very concerned about that statement because the gun violence restraining order can be a stopgap until actions happen in the court. It allows us to immediately respond. And what's important with the domestic violence situation is that you do not always have a cooperative victim. So we can step in and get those guns removed from the situation immediately. And the statistics are very strong that show that um, gun violence restraining orders are especially important tools for protecting victims of domestic violence um, because a victim is five times more likely to be killed if their abuser has access to a gun. So the two are so linked. Um, it is an absolutely important tool to make sure somebody is safe until they can go through the criminal justice system or whatever system they are going through. But Filting, it does sound like there's a lot that needs to happen in addition to, say, this restraining order to try to prevent horrific incidents of suicide, domestic violence, or mass shootings. Oh, I, I, absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more that more needs to be done. Gun, gun violence restraining orders are just one of many tools, uh, many, many laws that we've passed to um, limit access to, you know, automatic weapons, um, to really mm. ensure that people can get the help they need. But, but you're right, there's, there's a larger issue out there to ensure that even once the guns are taken away, that people can actually get the assistance that they need and the help they need. No yes, question. my understanding is this is providing something for the imminent threat when there isn't enough information to say warrant an arrest or a mental health hold. Well, Assemblymember Phil Ting, City Attorney Mara Elliott, New York Times correspondent Camel Robertson, appreciate all of you being on with us this morning to talk about California's red flag law and the situation in Indiana, and also to our listeners for staying with us on a tough morning. You've been listening to Forum. Susan Britton and Caroline Smith produced today's segment. I thank them, and I thank you. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.